I'm Clara Moranville. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be here with y'all. About three weeks ago, we started a series called uh, Avoiding the Financial Cliff. Fiscal. That one, too. I'm sorry. I'm not quite hooked up this morning properly. Randy, I need your support. All right, technical. Wiring difficulties. So you're wanting what? I need to be snapped. Snapped. Not that snap? No. You're talking about this one up here? Yes, that one. That one's done. Okay. All right, now I feel secure. Okay, so we've been discussing, we've been in a sermon series, and if you haven't been here for the sermon ser- sermons up to this point, I would highly recommend that you look online and look up the sermons. The password and usernames are Hope, Hope, so that you can listen to those, because um, otherwise some of what I'm going to say is going to sound a little forced or unusual because you don't have the background. But I'm going to review really quickly some basic information this morning that we've covered already. So we've been learning about the nature of a mammon spirit, and Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammonas. And we learn that Jesus is not necessarily prohibiting saying, you know, this is prohibited, you can't do it, is that it's impossible. They're two completely opposing masters, and you can't serve both. It's not either and, it's either or. And that's what Jesus is saying there. Now, the Greek word mammonas is translated in some English Bibles to be translated to the word word, the money or wealth, but really what Jesus is saying is it's a spiritual entity, it's a force, it's a power in the spiritual realm that works within humankind, both Christian and non-Christian, to influence them to love it and serve it. And so then um, we talked about how often a mammon spirit will partner itself or couple itself and bind itself with iniquity that's already residing in a believer's heart. And when those two forces or a general, several forces come together, it makes that power just that much greater and that much greater of a struggle within us as believers. So we looked at chapter, Acts, uh, chapter 4 in Acts, and we read about a guy named Simon who was a baptized, born-again believer who was under the influence of several um, spiritual entities. And we see him particularly struggling with the spirit of mammon coupled with bitterness that was already residing inside his heart. And then we share some thoughts about how our spirit, our soul, and our body work together. And I use some diagrams to illustrate uh, the contrast between a soulish Christian life and a spiritual Christian life. We can look at the first diagram. We are spirit, soul, and body. Uh, The body, the soma, is our physical being, or our hormones, or our appearance, having to do with our body, our, our five senses. The soul, or our psyche, includes our mind, our will, our emotions, our personality, our wanters. Okay, then the spirit, the pneuma, is that part of our soul that has communion with God. It's our conscience. It's between understanding right or wrong. It's where we, our intuition, our imagination plays a part in interacting and involving God in our lives. Now, diagram two, we discuss... Um, let's put diagram two up there. Okay, how our spirit, soul, and body interact with each other will determine whether or not we're going to be living a 
spiritual Christian life or a soulish Christian life. Now, the, di- the column to the left is when we allow our spirit to have communion with God and we allow our spirit to guide our decisions and therefore the soul submits to the spirit and the body submits to the soul and we do it that way, that's the way it's all in order and right on with God. But what we find ourselves is actually living a lot of our life on the right column where our mind, our will, our emotions, our wanters lead the way. Then our spirit and then our body. And when that happens, we're going to be living more of a soulish kind of life. Now, diagram two, um, let's see if there's anything else I want to say about that. Okay, so, so related to finances, we might make a decision based on our logic, reason, intellect, our will. And when we let that be the driver, we're living in the realm of the right, the soul. You know, we say, well, what's so bad about making a logical decision about how I'm going to spend money? Well, there's nothing wrong with that unless you make that the driver right the main primary reason in how you make decisions then you're going to have soulish results in our lives so that's what that's all about also if we allow our emotions to make our decisions relative to the topic of finance and this is true for anything relative to our who our friends are where we're going to live what we're going to do this diagram is much bigger but since we're talking about avoiding the fiscal cliff, we're primarily going to be talking about finances. But if we let our emotions like um, to alleviate depression, girls, and you go shopping when you're depressed, or out of fear how we make decisions, okay, or maybe because we feel guilty. We haven't spent enough time with the kids, so, or I you know, didn't call my wife or my husband to tell him that I was going to be late, and so out of guilt we buy flowers or do something like that. When we do that based on the soul instead of the spirit leading us into those right decisions, then we're living a soulish life. Okay, diagram three. Our mind, emotions, and wanters need redeeming. When we become a Christian, when we determine that we want to follow after God and his ways, that white part, that's our spirit. It is redeemed. It is God's. And he resides there always. Forever, like we sang, forever you'll be with us. Okay, those words are right on, right on scripture. But where we have the battle is the section that's kind of clearly not white, but clear, transparent, the soul and our body. Those areas need redeeming. And we have conflict in those areas. And to the extent that we yield ourselves to God and to his will, in the mind, our wanters, our emotions, our body, to that extent will be experienced Redeeming. Okay, so the key to becoming whole, teleos, complete, lacking in nothing, is to the extent that we can submit ourselves to God and allow those pockets of resistance to be filled by him, that we're going to experience more and more of the power of God in everything that we do. Okay, diagram four. Our mind and emotions have a God-given function. But it is only when it's under submission to the spirit that we're going to experience their intended blessing and support. To the extent that our emotions, our will, and our body submit to the spirit of God, then to that extent we will experience the abundant life promised to us. Now, understandably, all of us are in different places, and we are way okay with that. 
And all of us are at different parts of being able to surrender ourselves over to God. But to the extent that we're able to, that's awesome. And no one is expected to understand all the depths of where we need to surrender to God at any given point. Right? That's impossible. I cannot surrender more than I understand to surrender over to God. But to the extent that I know and I resist and I hold back, that is sin in my life. Not your life, in my life. So I want to share a couple of testimonies from some folks who have already begun to feel some experience, some freedom through this series. I have not mentioned their names, so if you happen to remember them saying that to you, do not point to them. Okay, here's one quote. I shared with my spouse how Randy's and your recent messages have been invaluable in facing the work pressures that try to grow into fear of failure and loss of job. I've been able to put those lies aside and roll up my sleeves. Here's another one. Your message definitely was for me. The way you distinguish between soul and spirit made sense. Too often I've been choosing to live for myself. I like the idea of asking the question, what's in it for God? Also distinguishing between individual sins or acts and iniquity, a pervasive problem, attitude, or spirit in one's heart was very helpful. Instead of focusing on the acts, I asked, what's the pervasive ongoing issue root in the heart that causes all this stuff in the first place? I mean, that was so well stated, much better than I felt like I did. <laughs> Quote, the Lord is challenging me to live a holy life for him instead of myself. At the same time, I can feel him reminding me that he loves me so I don't feel overly condemned and give up. He is for me and will help me be successful if I'm willing to cooperate and do my part. I think that person's really getting it. To give God any more than we understand is impossible, but to withhold from him that which we do understand is sin. So I want us to repeat a prayer, a prayer that we said last week. I'd like to invite you to say it out loud with me. I'll say it, and then if it fits with you, sits right with you, then you go ahead and say it out loud too. Jesus, I yield my will to you. I yield my fears to you. I yield my mind to you. I yield my wanter to you. Would you come and fill me? Well, this morning we're going to continue our study on now the mammon spirit and its influences and the top 10 symptoms that we might experience in our lives. Um, but before we do that, I want to pray. Well, Lord, we just thank you that you hear our prayers, those that we've said before we even got here this morning, those that we've said 10 years ago, you hear them. And this morning we come with a teachable heart and a surrendered heart. Father, I pray that you would help us understand with our spirit, our mind, and all of our being the truths that you want to release to us this morning. And that you would free us, Lord, from false beliefs. That you would free us from the influence of the evil one in our life. In your precious name, amen. Okay, so the top ten symptoms of a mammoth influence. 
probably the most obvious one is that tendency to worry or become anxious about money. Now, since none of us have that problem, I thought, well, I'd just skip that one and go to the next one. Okay, we are going to read a very long passage. So we're going to read it together. It will be up on the board. And let's go for it. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one serves two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you little faith. Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do... Oh, we'll stop there. There it goes. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we see Jesus spending a lot of time about provision in our life because he knows it's a concern that we have. And in this passage, although lengthy, five times he uses the word worry or a root of it. He says, don't worry, don't become anxious. Now something that you guys, we all need to hold on to, that anytime Jesus asks us to do anything or recommends we do something or instructs us to do something or commands us to do something, he always always intends to give us the strength we need to do it. He's not into burdening us with things to do and not be a part, fully a part, of helping us to follow through. If we, by willpower or determination, are going to face our problems of provision for our life, that's going to be an impossible task. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do it in the right manner. So in verse 34, Jesus culminates this part of the passage with this statement, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will have its own worries. Each day has enough trouble of his own. So while worry about the future is not necessarily always the only thing we worry about, well, excuse me, money is not always what we only worry about. It is a predominant topic that we do worry about. And so he gives us an antidote. 
Well, you may say, well, I don't really have that problem. I don't worry about money. I am seeking first the kingdom of God. So let's try a little God lie detector. I heard that they're laying off 30% of all the people of your company by the end of this month. How are you going to pay for that big property taxes due in June? What if you get laid off? I don't think I could get enough money to go to college. Our government continues to spend like this. By the time I'm ready to retire, there's going to be nothing to rely on. Now, while often we think that worrying about money is a problem restricted to those who are poor or in need, it's actually a very big problem with those who have accumulated a lot of it. So Time Magazine several years ago wrote an article called The Woes of Being Wealthy. I'm going to quote from the article. Growing up, Tracy Gary lived in opulent homes in Manhattan, Ball Harbor, Florida, on Lake Superior's Madeline Island, traveling among them in the family plane, their helicopter, and their yellow Rolls Royce. Parties and presents were plentiful, including a Ford Mustang for her high school graduation. At 21, Tracy received a $2 million inheritance. Most people would have been overjoyed, but the windfall only intensified her long-held feelings of guilt, isolation, and impotence. I was overwhelmed, says Tracy, now 36, who lives in San Francisco. Her problem, the plague of anxiety that seems to affect a growing number of the very rich and is called affluenza. Psychologists are recognizing that great riches are sometimes accompanied by crippling emotional and psychological fear. So the article is basically saying that families with riches that are handed down from generation to generation are plagued with this fear, the sense of guilt, the, the sense of I might lose the very thing that gives me identity. I mean, you folks, that sounds like a generational curse. It sounds like the mammon spirit visiting generation after generation. So Jesus understands the influence of the spirit of mammon, and so he tells us, hey, don't worry about the future. So in addition, he tells us, besides not worrying, he does give us an antidote. Seek first. Seeking first, where's our source going to come from? From the government? From my job? From welfare? From an inheritance I'm hoping to get? No, seek first. Your source, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Basically, Jesus is saying the same thing that Moses said in the Old Testament, that passage that we quoted last week and the week before, which is, choose God, make him the center, ask the question, what's in it for God, instead of what's in it for me. Okay, so that's the first symptom. The second symptom is money mismanagement. I don't know where the money went. Now, many people do not have any form of tracking system to, under, to track what's coming in and then how it's being spent. And as a result, there's no financial accountability. Now, this is a real problem for us since Jesus instructs us, hey, be good steward of everything that comes to you. Uh, how can we do that if we don't know what it is? Now, just imagine for a second a mega corporation. And the CFO, and I now know these terms because my husband works for a bag of com companies, as far as I'm concerned. And imagine the CFO saying, 
being asked, so what came in this quarter? And the response is, I don't know. I mean, I think things are okay. I mean, was there still money in the bank? So it's all good. That wouldn't work. And it doesn't work with God either. I mean, he is our director, our main guy, right? And so he gives us things, and he's saying at some point, and will say at some point, how did you do with it? What did you do? Now, Randy is the bookkeeper of our household. I don't even know how to balance a check. But I understand in about 10 years, that won't matter. I won't need to know how to do that. So I'm glad I didn't waste the time to learn it. But we have five daughters, and if not all of them, almost all of them have been trained by Randy on how to track what's coming in and what's going out. They either use a software like Quicken or Excel or something. I know there's a something out there. And I figure if anything happens to Randy at some point before me, I have five daughters I'm going to lean on. They'll help me. Right? Yeah. Girls, thank you. <laughs> Now, listen to this. Typically, all demonic influences working in your life likes to work in hiddenness. You steal something, you don't want to tell your mom, do you? So you hide it. Right? That, that is the way demonic activity works in their life. Hide it. Don't let them know that you took the cookie. You know, those are little ones. That's when they're little. And when they get bigger, it gets bigger, right? So he works in hiddenness. So when we start tracking, going in, going out, oh, that's where my money's going. I'm buying a soda and burger every day after work. Rack that up, five, six dollars, six times five times four. That, how much is that? Anybody? Math brain? How much? $120. A month. You could get a cell phone for that, right? A cell phone and payment. Yeah, well, that's not necessarily how you want to do it, but anyway. Okay, so then that's what the deal is, is that he hides things, and then we bring it to the light, and then we can begin to make a plan and a purpose for how we want to spend that $120. And we begin to create what's called a circle. And we're going to talk later on in the series about closing the circle so that we can have full accountability before God and be run by that column of the spirit other than our soul or our emotions. Okay, three, consistent financial lack. I never have enough money. Our culture, our media is constantly bombarding us with you have to have this. You didn't even know you needed this. How many of you 10 years ago knew that you needed to have your teeth whitened? Never heard of that. Now we're thinking about it. We're doing it. And that's fine. I'm not judging you. If that's in your circle, praise God. But I'm just, the point is we didn't know about this. You go to any store, any store, walk down any aisle, and you will see some things that were not invented they were not there three years ago. And we seem to muddle through okay without it. But suddenly now, I have to have it. I didn't know I needed this, but I needed it. And that is why my kitchen cabinet is filled with appliances I rarely use. Is that the case or true? Is that true or what? We just moved three or four of them to the top shelf because I never used them. That's sad. I got pegged preparing this lesson you guys so 
I may be looking like this, but there are three fingers pointing to me. My parents and my husband's parents both went through the Great Depression. And I remember talking to Margie. She's my mother-in-law. She's passed away. Sweet lady. And I remember her telling me their system and how they did it. They got paid once a month. Could you imagine getting paid once a month? And having to calculate how you're going to make it for that month? So because people are having so much trouble, they now do it like twice a month and some of us every week, right? So anyway, once a month she get paid. And so she had this shoebox, and in the shoebox she had envelopes, and on the envelopes she had obligations like uh, mortgage payment, tithe. And then she had others that were more like uh, needs, like utilities, food, clothing. And then she had those envelopes that were um, wants, vacation, repairs in the house. Okay, And she'd cash that check, hers and her husband. She would divvy up. And those envelopes. Okay, now if something came up that she wasn't expecting, she might borrow from the wants. And she would put an IOU in there. And the following month, she'd pay back what she had borrowed from that. Okay, so she had this amazing, she could have written this book that Randy and I have been studying, what she did. So then I asked, well, what did you do with the really big things? Because, you know, she remodeled, they remodeled their house several times. They kept adding. The original house was a one-bedroom. By the time they were done, there was one, two, three, four bedrooms, plus a family room, plus a pool. I mean, it just kept, you know, bigger and bigger. So I, how did you do that? She said, well, Claire, this is what I used to do. I found out how much X was going to cost. Okay? X is going to cost that much money. I got another envelope, and I start stashing money in there. When I had saved up half of what it was going to take to build the pool, I knew I can take out a loan for the other half because I can confidently pay it back. You are so smart. No wonder you had money to help Randy get through college. So, anyway, I just thought I'd share that to you because I think, you know, you don't need to have, if you can't afford Quicken, try the envelopes. I have some envelopes if you need some. All right. Well, part of the problem is she was on cash basis only then, at the time that she was doing that. Now, I mean, some of us don't even, haven't even touched cash for days. Not because we don't have it. It's just like we don't carry it anymore, right? We use the little plastic thing, and we swipe, swipe, swipe. The problem is it's a lot easier to swipe than to hand over six $20 bills for a toy or a tool or a something I don't really need, right? Oh, it kind of hurts to hand over that cash, right? Versus this, no problem. And so no problem gets us into debt. Okay, number four, I need it mentality. So the antidote for this is to answer this question, how much do I really need? And once we answer that question, we will have this circle that's enclosed and we know this is how much I really need. Now, most of us, there's little distinction between I need it and I want it. I want it sounds a lot like I need it. Unless we go to prayer and ask God, how much is enough? So, let's do this. We know that we have a loving Father. And we know that we want to work in the realm of the spirit. 
If we went to God in prayer and said, Father, what do I need? Does he know what we need before we even ask him? Does that sound like a verse? There's a verse that says, the Father knows what we need before we even ask him. So if we go to him, I have a feeling he's going to include food. Those pair of shoes that your kid needs. You know, do you think that he could do that? Yes, he could. And so we believe that and we begin to live in the sources of the spirit instead of the mind on how are we going to get those pair of shoes that my kid really wants. I remember when we were missionaries in Mexico, I wanted a slotted spoon. I didn't know that was called, but a slotted spoon is a spoon with holes. I wanted one of those. We were on a $300 budget a month. That was our budget. That's what I remember. I don't know what you remember, but that's what I remember. We had $300 a month coming in. There's no way I was going to buy a $3.99 slotted spoon, right? So I asked God, God, I really... I want this really bad. <laughs> it would make it so much easier to get the vegetables out of the water, you know, out of the pan to serve it. I am not kidding. Within the week, bags of stuff was given to us, and we were told, go through it and see what you want, and whatever you don't need or want, want, then give it away. You know the end of the story. The slotted spoon was right in there. I did not have to pay for it. So we can ask God. Five, impulse buying. Now, this week, this is a you know, confession. I needed to, to go to the store and buy some material because I'm making this. Um, I have a daughter, granddaughter, Piper. She turned three. And she has everything she could possibly want as a three-year-old. So the only gift I can ever give her that's original that she doesn't already have is something I made. So I went to Hancock, bought some material to make her something. I had this mental list. I went in there, I got the materials, I also had three other things that were not on my mental list that were on the clearance table. (laughs) Folks, if you haven't figured this out yet, stores are designed, right, and stocked, is this true, for impulse buying. You all know what an end cap is? And do you know what its purpose is? Stop, look, shop. And... There must be something else down that aisle that I might like, right? Now, also, there are spirits or entities over cities, okay? Uh, Several years ago, Mercy, our youngest daughter, myself, and my mom, we traveled to Panama so that she could meet for the first time and meet for the second time our family of origin. Great trip. Before we went, we were reminded by our Panamanian friends, go shopping, The malls are phenomenal there. They are so cheap, everything. Because the Panama Canal is no, you know, the canal goes there. 5% of all national, international trade, 5% of it goes through that canal. And they drop things off there while they're going there, right? So, sure enough, we have some time. We went to the shopping emporiums, they're called. To give you the sense of what it's like. And look at these prices, Mercy. This is amazing. I can't believe it. Do you realize how much this would cost in the States? Five times more. Honey, just put anything you want on that cart. Within an hour, the cart was full to overflowing. And I could feel the anxiety and the by pulse increasing. 
And it wasn't because the shopping cart was full. It was because I was afraid I was going to miss an aisle and miss something. And I just kind of went, what is going on? And I remember pausing with Mercy and saying, Mercy, can you remind me, who was it that we wanted to buy gifts for? So we, we talked about it, and she reminded me. I'm like, oh, okay. So we removed most of what, what was in that shopping cart. Folks, what was going on was the spirit of mammon was residing through there, and I just got sucked right into it. Okay? Now, when we then pause and think, Lord, why did I come here? And who is it that I wanted to bless? Who was it that we were supposed to bless? I disengaged myself from the buying and taking to the giving. And suddenly it was different. And I, I think we did pretty good, Mercy, didn't we? She got the cutest dress there. Do you remember that black one? Yes. It was very nice. Another characteristic of impulse buying is buying more than we need. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's someone in my family that he loves to go to Home Depot. <laughs> and so when we, he has a broken sprinkler head, he goes to Home Depot, and he doesn't just buy the one that he needs. He buys several because, you know, you might have another one that might be broken. The problem is that when he comes home and he does find another one that is broken, but the 15 extra that he has isn't the right one. It's a problem that he has. <laughs> I know. It could be a son-in-law. It could. It could be. I have three son-in-laws and I have several grandchildren. Okay, six. Stinginess. When the spirit of mammon has convinced us that money is our source, we can be tempted to be stingy. Because we don't want to get rid of what might be what I need in a time of difficulty. So you will hear a stingy person say, we can't afford it. And you would think, well, understandably, if you're one family income and things are difficult and, yeah, you're, you're in the lower range of making money, yeah, we can understand telling our kids we can't afford it. But it's, it's a common problem that is shared with people of wealth who have a lot of money saved because they have to protect their source. that makes sense? So I mean, think one of the biggest problems, the biggest excuse I hear for people not tithing is this. I can't afford it. I don't make enough money. It's not that it's not biblical. It's that I can't afford it. I'm the exception to the rule. And the deal is, is that, you know, if God would just give me a bigger salary and I made more money, then I could tithe. But the problem is the money comes in and we don't start tithing because a spirit of mammon is hooked in you somewhere. And he's partnered with fear or bitterness or greed or anger or something. And he causes you to not surrender that which you know you should do. So we have to answer the question, how much is enough? And once we do that, we're... We can move forward. Jesus said this, He who is faithful with the little will be given even more. This is from Luke chapter 19. 
Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I would really recommend that you read the whole passage when you get home. Luke 19. He also said in Luke 16, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones or large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Folks, the little things, the little, he's talking about money. That's what's little. In the context, Jesus is saying, I want to bless you. That is my agenda to bless you. In order to bless you, I need to know that you're going to be a good steward about little things. Then I can bless you with the bigger things and the greater things. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. It's a mammon spirit, which is also unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives all we need for our enjoyment. Wow, God's into us enjoying life. That's news. <laughs> well, it should be. First Timothy, chapter 6. No? Is that there? Okay, it's not there. So I'll read it again. Teach those who are rich in this world not be proud, not to be proud. Oh, there it is. Okay. So let's go. Let's, let's, that's a little interrupted. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they can experience true life. You know, people who make enough money, make good money, make a lot of money, if they have a close circle and that is enough, how much do you need, how much do I need, then everything outside of there is going to empower you to do this stuff, the good works, the blessing, always being available and always be ready to bless those. Seven, covetousness and greed. Now, some people mix the definition of those two words. Covetousness is wanting something that you don't have. Whereas greed is wanting more and more and more and more. It's a step, it's a bump step higher than stinginess in that it's inordinate attachment to something. Like, I really, that's all they think about. And there's no end to it. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a rich guy who had so much, his circle was not closed, that he had to build more and more and more places to contain what he was making. And this is what God tells, says he is. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night, this very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be done with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Scary thought. Okay, another symptom of the mammoth spirit is discontentment. 
Um, Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. True, godliness and contentment is itself of great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there's that mammon spirit, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So Paul says, godliness and contentment is great wealth. And then he tells us, guys, the stuff that we're gathering, we're not taking it with us. And then lastly, he says, uh, be careful, learn to be content, otherwise that can lead you down a path of destruction. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And let's stop there. Here is the antidote. That God is our source. This is how Paul can be content in any situation. I can do everything through him. There's our source. Through him who strengthened me. I don't think this came naturally to Paul. I'm just kind of thinking that. Nine. The ninth symptom. Bondage to debt. Debt is one of the mechanisms that the evil one uses to keep us in bondage. That interest thing. So even those that say zero interest or no interest for three years is a bait. It is a bait because eventually it's going to catch up to you. And eventually you're going to find that I couldn't afford it to begin with. Debt and lack of debt management is a strong sign of the spirit of mammoth's influence. And we'll talk about that later, so I'm just brushing through that one because later on I think Randy's covering that one. Ten, and this is the last one, exaggerated emphasis on money. You ever listen to people when they talk, and the conversation just goes to money, how much they're, they're not making, how much somebody else is making. It just gravitates on how shabby their car is or whatever. It's just money. And then the conversation then goes off to something else, but then it goes back to this. Now, this is not to shame us or to shame anybody else. It's for us to identify I do that. Yeah, I, I do that. What's that? What's that connected to? Another one relative to um, emphasis on money is this mindset that if money has the power to do whatever. This is what our government believes, right? If we had more money, we could take care of crime, illiteracy, poverty, right? And, and, you know, our kids are graduating and they don't know how to take care of themselves, let alone a household. So we need more money to take care of this problem. We need welfare, more welfare money to help those that don't know what they're doing. And that is a mammon spirit. The helping of somebody is not the mammon spirit. The mammon spirit is valuing money and believing that money can solve our problems. Okay, that's it. Those are the top ten. There are probably a lot of other ones that we tend to do.
But those are the top ten. And so what I want to do this morning is I want the... Okay, you're right on that. Good. They're up there. And I want to give us some time to just look at them and say, Holy Spirit, which is a problem that I have. Okay? I am not interested in you guys being informed so that you can judge each other. Right? So we're not into that. I'm into you being convicted by the Holy Spirit so you can ask him to remove the log out of your eye so that maybe you could help somebody with a splinter in there. Right? Something we've talked, been talking about. Okay, so this Holy Spirit, just come. Just come, Lord, and just speak. Just show them what's going on. Well, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a chance to confess. Confess is agreeing with God. God, I have a problem with impulse buying. I have a problem with worry and anxiety over money. So I'm going to give you a chance to agree with God right now. That's confession. Okay, so look at that. And say in your spirit, God, I have a problem with. And just let him know. He already knows it, but let him know that you know it. Okay, if you need more time, then maybe write down a piece of paper, the ones you didn't get the chance to go through, so you can do this at home. The next step is repentance. Repentance is changing the way we think. Thinking a different way than you've been thinking. So it would sound something like this. Lord, I don't want to be an impulse buyer anymore. I would like to know... What is it that I really need? And close that circle. Lord, I need your help to have self-control in that area. Okay? Change the way you're thinking. So, why don't you got, try that with him for a little bit. And the last step is renouncing a spirit of mammon. And I think we can all probably identify to at least one or maybe a couple of things up there, whatever. So if we could all stand as the people. 
And the prayer is going to sound like this, okay? I'll say phrase, and you guys say the phrase. In Jesus, I'm, I'm going to say the general thing, and then we'll do it step by step so you can feel like, yeah, I like that. I could say something like that. It's going to sound something like this. Jesus, I renounce a spirit of mammon that's functioning in my life. And I command that thing to leave my presence. And I surrender to you, Lord, my fear, my anxiety, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I ask that you would fill me now with your way of thinking. Something like that, okay? So, Jesus, I renounce a spirit of mammon over my life and over the life of my family. I break the power of mammon's spirit that has visited me from my family of origin. And I command that spirit to be gone. I break your power over my life. And where you have been hidden from my view up to this point, I command you to show yourself So I can change my mind about that and agree with God. And I take back the ground that's been taken by the spirit of mammon functioning in my life. And I ask you, Jesus, to take me to your throne so that you can fill me with your empowering presence to do that which you want me to do. And to fulfill my call in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thank you. Bless you. And we'll see you next week. If you need prayer, the service is over. If you need prayer for other things unrelated to what we talked about, please come forward. Also, I would really appreciate you guys sending me testimonies of what God is doing in your life because I expect a lot of things to start popping in your life. I expect people to get jobs. I expect people to get raises. I expect people to see debts removed. I'm going to see a lot of stuff. I'm going to see you start thinking differently about how you give and how you spend yourself on the kingdom. Okay? So I'm, I'm expecting you guys to start sending me emails, you know, that kind of thing, or written, whatever. Okay, bless you. There will be some folks up here to pray for you, and we'll see you next week.